On the 25th of May 2020, George Floyd, an African-American man, allegedly tried to pass a counterfeit $20 bill while buying groceries. 20 minutes later, he was dead, killed by a white police officer. The killing of George Floyd sparked the largest protests against racism in America since the civil rights movement. However, these protests have met with resistance from President Trump, who has deployed unmarked militarized police to, in his words, dominate the streets of large American cities. With coronavirus raging and a presidential election rapidly approaching, it feels as though we are witnessing a battle for the soul of America. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we will give you the city view on race and American politics. Hello, and thanks for tuning in. Today I'm joined in our virtual studio by our own clairvoyant, the keeper of the city crystal ball, and my co-host, Constantine Vossing, lecturer in international politics. Today our guests are Inderjeet Parmar, professor of international politics. His work focuses on the history, politics, and sociology of Anglo-American foreign policy elites over the past hundred years. We're also joined by Leonie Fleischman, lecturer in international politics. Her work explores social movements, civil resistance campaigns, and human rights activism. And of course, we all work at the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. American politics is difficult to ignore even in ordinary times, but when you add the Trump presidency to coronavirus, the largest economic downturn since the Great Depression, and the biggest sustained protests against racial injustice in a generation, it becomes impossible to ignore it. But before we jump into today's topic, we need to pull out the city crystal ball. Take it away, Constantine. Now, let's start by looking into the City University crystal ball. Our two political scientists have unique expertise and knowledge to analyze the current situation, and most importantly, the future of the politics of race and how it will affect American politics, uh, as well as more broadly speaking. Uh, So to get the most out of their expertise, we'll ask them 10 questions about the future, and they have to answer yes or no, nothing else. Now, that is uh, difficult for academics, um, but uh, it helps us, again, to get the most of our experts and what they know about the the, the topic. Um, So, are you guys ready for the City University Crystal Ball? Yes. Excellent. Question number one. Will the response to the Black Lives Matter in the US be so swift and effective that American society can safely become colorblind in 10 years? What would you say, Leonie? No. No. Question number two. Come next year, will the debate about race be more about specific material changes than changes in political symbolism? No. Yes. Okay, thank you. Question number three. Will future historians call Donald Trump a white supremacist? Yes. Inajit. Yes. Question number four. In five years, will there be any Confederate monuments left in the US? Yes. Energy. Yes. Question number five. Will Joe Biden nominate an African-American as his vice presidential running mate? Yes. Energy. Yes. Question number six. In five years, will we be able to conclude that, on average, white people have played a constructive role in political movements against racism? No. Energy. Yes. Question number seven. Will America ever come to terms with the legacy of slavery? No. Imagine. Yes. Question number eight. 
In the 2028 elections, will the Republicans receive more than 30% of the African-American vote? No. Indigent. No. Question number nine. Will social class ever replace race, ethnicity, and religion as the major political dividing line in American politics? No. Indigent. Yes, I think it will. Question number 10. Will Black Lives Matter in the US have a long-term positive effect on the efforts of minorities to make their voices heard in other countries? Yes. Indigent. Yes. All right, thank you so much. This was the City University Crystal Ball. The best place to start our conversation today is with Black Lives Matter. The massive protests that have taken to the streets of most American cities over the past few months have drawn the attention of the world, but both of our guests think that they will not produce a colorblind society within the next decade. Inderjeet, would you like to explain why you think this is the case? You know, race in the United States is very, very deep. It's long-lived, and it's impacted every aspect of American life. So the idea that in just a short space of time that you can have such fundamental change is, uh, is you know, I'm skeptical about that. On the other hand, there have been very large scale changes too, uh, but those changes have been attenuated by the class system. So I think when we look at race and we look at resistance movements uh, and their effects on the politics and the structure of American society, then I think we have to kind of intersect race with with class. And those two systems, I think they interact in very interesting ways. Principally, and I think in the last 40, 50 years, as a way of incorporating what could be incorporating moderate leadership of racial resistance movements, uh, incorporating them into the mainstream party system uh, and uh, alienating or marginalizing the more radical groups such that effectively the whole movement gets channeled into parliament, if you like, parliamentary and congressional politics. So that its effects, therefore, uh, are never going to be so deep and fundamental as to transform the lives of all, say, African-Americans, In if we're talking about African-Americans, uh, they will transform the lives of many and maybe even 30, 40%, but that will be a relative minority compared with those who face kind of continuing systemic disadvantage, which is, you know, which is uh, long lived, as I said, and uh, is continuing. So, I mean, I have to agree with Indigy in the fact that the history of inequality and discrimination along racial lines is so embedded in America that 10 years is not a very long time to make such profound changes. But I also think the question is about around the concept of colorblind. And I think the current Black Lives Movement is about black liberation, about the liberation of the African-Americans and about equality. It's not necessarily about creating a non-racial colorblind society. So I think there's a long way to go before the African-American community um, achieve racial equality. And then it's only once that's been achieved that you can look even further forward to a society structured um, without racial lines, potentially. So I think the deep-seated history plus the goals of the current Black Lives Matter movement means that 10 years time is not looking at colorblind society, but that doesn't mean that it's not gonna have a positive impact on the inequalities that exist today. I think, yeah, that those are really important points. Uh, I think there's an issue about Black Lives Matter as an organization. Black Lives Matter has become a symbol. Uh, those words have become a symbol. 
But Black Lives Matter as a movement, as an organization, or an umbrella for a set of organizations, actually has not been the principal driving force behind the protests. They are not the ones who are organizing most of the protests across the United States, but their name, their badge, is being worn everywhere. So these protests have become, they become known as Black Lives Matter. So I think there's a distinction between the movement as a whole and the organization and what it stands for. And when you look at the, I don't know, I think I was reading a survey by Pew, which said that something like 6% of all Americans had been protesting on the street uh, in the wake of George Floyd's killing. That's 17 to 18 million people. The vast majority of those people are, are white people. So what you've got is, you've got a movement which is focused around black liberation or kind of black intersectionality, LGBT and women and so on, but actually a bigger movement which is cutting across a lot of those kinds of boundaries and unifying different strands so that you've got white anti-racism. You look at a place like Portland, Oregon, which is a 6% African-American population. The people getting beaten up on the streets are mainly white people by federal law enforcement. And I think that, that says to me something very, very profound has shifted in the last couple of months, uh, which I think in a way is a source of some important, I would even call it hope that the sort of the graphic nature of the police violence uh, in regard to Floyd, it leaves no room for doubt about what happened and the kind of whole sequence of events and the sort of the sheer brutality in, in humanity of what happened. And I think that has had a profound effect on people's attitudes about race and racism, including Republican voters. And it's had a profound effect on people's ideas about law enforcement and their levels of confidence within it. So, so I think those two factors have changed. And so I think that then changes the matrix within which Black Lives Matter as a group has to organize as well. So I think that that sort of shifts the ground very importantly. Um, so I think that just adds on to what Leone is emphasizing. I think what Ina just just mentioned is a is a, is a great uh, a very important point. It also speaks to one of the crystal ball questions where he and uh, Leone actually uh, disagreed a, a little bit, and that was the question about the constructive role of white people in the in the future of um, race politics and whether white people have a constructive role to play in political movements against racism. And it's inconsistent with Indrajit's response to that question that he thinks uh, he's maybe more optimistic about the role of white people and Leone. There was a, a little bit less optimistic about that, and that became clear in, in, in Indrajit's uh, discussion of um, of the Black Lives Movement in, in, in Portland and the role of white people uh, in trusting and all of that. Leonie, why did you have a sort of a more pessimistic role about the sort of the future of that? You know, irrespective of what's going on right now, why, why did you say no? I don't think in five years' time we'll look back and say white people really play a constructive role in this. I've been looking at this concept of allyship in different cases across the world and it's very complex and it's very complicated and there's lots of examples where members of the dominant group, the privileged group, have been helpful in supporting the oppressed resistors but there's also a large number of examples where the involvement, um, specifically the dominant role of these privileged individuals has actually had a negative impact on the resistance movement. And so the politics around allyship and the dynamics around allyship have to be really well thought through. 
And one of those is about those who are part of the dominant group taking time to learn and to listen. I think it's very, um, not necessarily easy, but it's more straightforward to go to a protest, put yourself on the line, become the hero of the protest, than it is to take a step back, to listen, to hear what it is that the oppressed people are looking to achieve and how they want to achieve it. So I think sometimes when you are part of that privileged group, you think that you have the answer. You think, I know how to solve the situation, I know how to help you, when in fact you haven't experienced that oppression yourself. And there's various theoretical ideas around those who haven't experienced oppression cannot liberate others. If you are the one experiencing oppression, you have to liberate yourself. And the role of the ally is really important. They're needed because they do hold a certain privilege in society that can be useful, but it has to be used very carefully and it has to be used in such a way that listens and learns from those who are leading the movement rather than taking over the movement. So I think there is a constructive role for white allies, but it's gonna take time for those white allies to learn how they can be constructive. And that takes time. So I don't think five years is a realistic period for that learning to happen. That's an excellent point, Leonie, and I think it's worth remembering also that 50% of white people, according to the latest polls from Harris X, would vote for Donald Trump if the election was held today. So while we may have a lot of people in the streets protesting for racial injustice who are allies, we have a lot of people who seem to be willing to sit on their hands and tolerate extreme racial injustice in American society. Which leads us back to one of our crystal ball questions, which was, will historians view Donald Trump as a white supremacist? You both answered yes, and I think we know the reasons why, but I think it's very important to unpack this idea of white supremacy, because I know that in my mind, the first image it conjures is of a Ku Klux Klansman holding a burning cross. But one of the things that has come out of the Black Lives Matter movement is that this is a much more complicated phenomena, and we need to start thinking about white supremacy with a little bit more nuance. Indrajit, perhaps you'd like to share why you think the Trump presidency will be tainted by white supremacy and what you think white supremacy means. The reason I think uh, that Donald Trump is is a white supremacist is his, his own political and personal past, his attitude towards um, Barack Obama's presidency, his uh, support and leadership of the Bertha movement, which challenged the very idea that, uh, he, that Obama was uh, an American uh, and therefore to be president and many Republicans were calling him a Kenyan anti-colonial and so on and and that uh, if you like allied with the the right-wing drift of the Tea Party created a, a very, very large corporate-led rightward shift in American politics so it was always material and also symbolic and those two tendencies culminated in 2016 both with the the Obama presidency as a kind of as a symbol of what America was heading towards in 20, 25, 30 years time, which was a majority minority nation and playing on those white anxieties and fears about it being a minority in their own country. And but it was also allied with a great deal of critique of the mainstream party leaderships, which were seen to be in hock with the corporations and not for ordinary working people, and who'd sold the country to the foreigner 
uh, they'd outsourced jobs to China and elsewhere and so on, and that that establishment had no right to rule. And so when you look at what Trump did, he used those racialized fears, but also an economic message. That actually was not far away from the message that got so many votes for Bernie Sanders on the other side, you know, minus the xenophobic racism and so on. So, so white supremacy, if you like, has always been material and symbolic. And he is able to, if you like, resurrect that uh, very, very skillfully and very powerfully. And, and I think it has kind of come out much more overtly because of the kind of forces he released. You know, David Duke said in 2008 that uh, Barack Obama is a great visual aid in galvanizing white power. And he was right. It has. And uh, I think that has continued. So what I would say is that President Trump has a, has a racialized worldview towards the United States population, but also towards the rest of the world, too. And he practices the kind of politics of the yellow peril in regard to China and, uh, and other countries as well. And so I think that white supremacy is a very powerful factor, but it's not alone. <clears throat> it's always tied up with other class factors. And I think those class factors, I think probably for the first time in, I don't know, maybe more than a century of American politics, those class factors are now very, very powerful indeed. So I think the identity politics that Donald Trump plays and the identity politics of the Democratic leadership champions are actually means by which to deflect and to play the politics of symbolism away from the politics of material redistributions. So both sides champion identity over material as a way of, uh, if you like, deflecting radical thinking about changing and redistributing income and wealth and so on. I think you're absolutely right that Donald Trump makes this sort of populist pitch or an appeal to the working class. But I think it's really important to contrast the difference between campaigning Trump and governing Trump. Governing Trump has surrounded himself with people who have backgrounds in global finance, uh, who would not be out of place at uh, any of the administrations leading up to the Trump administration. It seems to be the sort of same old Republican hat. It's really just that he provides a sleight of hand. He pitches economic populism, but the people who he surrounds himself in cabinet are not exactly the people who are going to be advocating for an advanced industrial strategy to revive the American manufacturing base. Leonie, what do you think about white supremacy and the Trump administration? I think Trump's done very well to stoke the flames. I think as there was an increase in race conscious policies in the Democratic Party, there was an inevitable black backlash um, amongst white voters. And I think Trump has done well to galvanize that backlash and to, to stoke those flames. And I think it was in the Charleston protests where there was the clash between um, the, those um, supporting the Confederate symbols, symbols and the anti-racist protesters. And Trump said, there's very fine people on both sides. Um, and I think that's clear support um, there for white supremacist ideas. Picking up on that, I found it really remarkable when I watched the Jonathan Swan interview with Donald Trump, that when pressed multiple times to say something nice about recently deceased civil rights leader John Lewis, Trump could not extend even the smallest olive branch uh, to the departed senator. Uh, it was remarkable because politicians can usually reach for a boilerplate condolence to someone on the other team. They can say, well, I disagreed with him, but he was a good man. 
etc., etc. But Trump can't even extend that small courtesy. And I think that has a lot to do with the racial politics and how Trump views people in America. I would add regarding John Lewis, I would add that he refused to attend Trump's inauguration. Um, and he also was one of the biggest uh, supporters of the Mueller inquiry uh, into President Trump. And I think those two played a role. But as you say, in, in an election year, uh, when he's basically saying, look, I stand for white supremacy uh, against the Chinese, against uh, anybody else, and also against uh, you know, somebody like uh, John Lewis. So I think he's trying to galvanize that particular vote. Uh, as well, of course, he's, uh, he's got that kind of childish, brattishness, uh, impetuousness about him as well. I find it fascinating that as a politician and as an incumbent, Trump seems completely disinterested in building a broad-based coalition that will carry him to victory. And you can see this in his very straightforward championing of uh, Confederate symbols. He's defended Confederate statues. He wants to keep American military bases named after Confederate generals. He's publicly criticized NASCAR on Twitter for banning the Confederate battle flag from their events. These are not popular issues with American voters, even in red states. By striking out this position, which is an extreme position, he is showing that he is not particularly interested in cobbling together an electoral college coalition that would keep him in the White House, let alone a popular coalition that would have him win the majority of the vote in November. And I think this tells us a lot about who Trump views as a real American and very strong quotation marks and who is worthy of his attention as president of the United States. Well, it might in a sense be, and this is sort of a bit of a counterpoint, I get your point, David, but at the same time, uh, even though there's polls on these specific issues that say, well, people are against, uh, you know, the Confederacy symbols, they, they, they don't like this or that about what Trump does. But at the same time, I think even in those instances where he deviates from specific expectations or values or preferences that people have, it might still be electorally productive and, and beneficial to do these sorts of things because it galvanizes and adds to his image as the sort of the maverick, the one who's sort of showing it, sticking it to those guys. Uh, and even if I don't, as a sort of as a uh, as a white southerner in this case that we were referring to, if I don't like this particular preference, I still sort of, you know, it adds as a sort of a, a bonus point for Trump anyway, because it's another piece of evidence that he, he has the guts um, to sort of show it to those, stick it to those guys. So, you know, I, I, I think I get your point, David, but I think there's also this aspect to it that, that in the end, uh, there is a 30% of people in the American electorate that will not waver in support for Donald Trump. And that is one thing that we've seen, even in those disastrous past month, Corona, uh, economic downturn, and, and all of those specific things that you added as well, there are 40% of the American likely voters that uh, will continue to support him, and they will support him to the bitter end. And I think this kind of behavior adds to that positively. President Trump has not, in a single moment of his presidency, reached out across the aisle on anything. He won uh, on the basis of an uncompromising message, and he has effectively governed symbolically on that uncompromising kind of message. And I think his strategy is, it is a little mysterious from the standpoint of ordinary, normal politicians, but I think he's actually trying to do something more than an ordinary, normal kind of politician. I think he's building a block. I think he's rebuilt the Republican Party, reshaped the Republican Party, 
such that even after he leaves office, if, if it's in November or January, or in four years further down the line, I think he has transformed the Republican Party. Um, and there are other quite charismatic individuals who are lining up, who are intellectually a lot more coherent than he is, uh, who basically are sen selling the same kind of message. So the other thing I would say is that I'm not sure what is going to happen in no the November election. Uh, there's talk about delaying it, which I suspect is uh, a lot of hot air, but, there's, but I think he's trying to delegitimize any narrow defeat that he may face on November the 3rd, uh, and thereby mobilize a lot of his, his voters uh, who are armed, as well as federal law enforcement and others, to tie the United States up in, a, in political chaos and strife. So that I don't think he's necessarily going to leave off, but voluntarily leave office if he were to lose. So his uncompromising message is, hold on to the 80-90% of Republicans who have been solidly behind him for the last three and a half years and hope for the best for the Electoral College. Any narrow defeat, he's going to blame on mail-in voting and he's going to try to delegitimize the result. God knows what's going to happen with that um, if he goes down that route because as we know, you know, the American presidential election is 50 separate elections. Each state has its own election and each state's election results and the, the electors to the Electoral College are determined by each state. A, gov a Republican state could refuse to validate the result in their state if they go behind Trump. And then you could have, you have a total chaos. So I'm not sure he's going to leave office uh, very willingly, especially if he loses narrowly. If he loses by a landslide, then I think it's going to be very much more difficult. But you remember 2016, even though he won the Electoral College, uh, he lost by 2.8 million votes in the popular vote, but he still said it was rigged. Both Inderjit and Leone said no questions asked. Further historians will call Donald Trump a white supremacist. He has done a lot of things uh, even before his presidency and definitely during his presidency that provide a lot of evidence for that claim that he is in fact a white supremacist. At the same time, you've also uh, had different responses to the question as to whether uh, America will ever come to terms with the legacy of slavery. And this I found interesting because in a sense, slavery is the original sin of the American polity, of the American state. Uh, and it has structured politics so strongly uh, uh, ever since the, the until now. But Inderjit says um, uh, that America will come to terms with the legacy of slavery, is a bit more optimistic, and Leonie says no, uh, America will not come to terms with the legacy of slavery. Why do you think that is? Maybe I'll start on the more negative slants then. So I think one thing is what do we mean by come to terms with? And I think there's lots of ways of understanding that and unpacking that. There's you know, truly learning and understanding the history and making sure it's present in, um, throughout the education system. There's removing any symbols that do not take into account the heritage of African-Americans. So all the efforts that are being made at the moment to remove statues of the Confederacy and the flag. And we could consider those to be aspects of coming to terms with. But there's also the element that the society has been structured in a way that privileged the white people over black people. And to reach a point where, the, where society no longer privileges that group over others, I think that's much harder to achieve. 
it will require those who have benefited from the system to release some of those privileges in favor of those who have suffered from the system. And it's not necessarily overturning the system, but it is about creating that equality. And there's talk about financial um, reparations, for example, to um, truly practically, materially come to terms with the history of slavery. And whether that can actually be realized in practice, um, I'm, I'm not sure. Perhaps there's a symbolic discussion around that element, but when it, whether it can actually be achieved. So I think there's definitely elements of, of making progress towards accepting the history, understanding and acknowledging the history, but whether we, America can ever actually overcome that history, such as that there's true equality amongst the races, I'm more skeptical about that result. I, I can't actually disagree with anything that uh, Leonie has said. Uh, it's so hard to answer a yes, no, so I'll try to explain why why everything that Leone says is true, uh, but also its opposite could also be true. Uh, yet, uh, having read Fidel Castro's biography recently with Cuba as a country which head-on tackles and tackled racial oppression, after many, many decades of genuine attempts, there remains racial discrimination and racial inequality and so on. So I'm not that much of an optimist that it will not be an issue, but I think I'm very encouraged by certain tendencies uh, which have emerged much more recently. Before that, one thing is obviously, you know, America's a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country uh, has embraced Jews and Catholics as equals in the past 150 years. So that's a massive shift. Yes, African-Americans are, uh, their history and their uh, movement, uh, forced movement to the US is very different from that. But I think the two things which I think give me some sort of reason for optimism is one is that the politics of, of class has become much more powerful and it's in the uplifting of working people as a whole which, uh, if you like, has been galvanizing a lot of the politics. And that politics is becoming much more embedded, even within the Congress, uh, within the Democratic Party, uh, with the election of more and more kind of a Sanders, Bernie Sanders type candidates from Democratic Socialists uh, and others as well. So that is to say material politics over and above class or racial politics is becoming more important and is actually becoming electorally viable. And that progressive politics has a great, greater level of support. Second thing is, I would say, is the millennials. If you look at the millennials, they constitute something in the region of 85 million American people. In the next 20, 30 years, they're going to be the, the normal American, if you like. So their politics is far, much further to the left and more materially to the left, Re redistributive politics, because of the material conditions under which they are living, which are ex all exacerbated by the pandemic and its economic fallout uh, at home. So I think those combinations and the fact that the demographics um, of the US are changing as well, I think those are factors for change, which, will, which I think will push the United States much more in the direction of a society which is much more at terms with its racial, racial past. But, you know, as I said at the beginning, I would see America as a racial capitalism, that it's not 
you know, the history of American society is not a history of racial struggles. I think in the history of American society is the history of racialized class struggles and that the two have to are totally interlocked. So that white privilege, uh, whether you're a poor white in the deep south in the 19th century, uh, as Booker T. Washington said, you know, the poor white man uh, can't hold the black man down in the gutter without getting down there with him. And when you hold somebody down there, you stay down there with them as well. And I think that recognition may be a long time in coming, but I think there are some factors which may militate in a different direction. But there's no kind of uh, linear linearity to the change. And uh, for every Obama moment of post-racialism, uh, there's the kind of backlash or the blacklash, as it is often called. And so American politics is very, very fluid. Um, but it seems to be that the millennials and uh, the politics of class have kind of coincided with these BLM kind of fueled movement, which I think has, uh, gives us a little bit more room for hope. What uh, Constantine called the original sin of the American state is something that I think about quite a lot as someone who comes from a settler colonial state. Uh, spoilers for our listeners, I'm a Canadian, not an American. But what these two societies have in common is that they are built on some highly systematized forms of racial injustice. Uh, in the Canadian case, it is more related to the dispossession of indigenous peoples than the oppression of black people. But these are not unrelated issues. A lot of people don't know how far back slavery goes in America, in the Americas. Uh, the first slaves were brought to Hispaniola by uh, the successor to Christopher Columbus in 1502. And one of these slaves was the first slave to escape and to join the indigenous peoples who were uh, retreated to the hills to resist Spanish colonialism. My worry is that this has left an indelible stain on our societies, and there's going to be no way to get away from it. There's going to be no redeeming moment for the sins of settler colonialism. Uh, but this tends to be sort of my maudlin reflections when I'm feeling a bit cynical. One of the things that gives me reasons to be cheerful right now is the way that the discourse has changed. We've moved away from this discussion of de jure rights, you know, the idea that everything will be fine if everyone possesses the exact same status in society. And instead, we're speaking to different systemic forms of injustice, uh, because it's fine if someone has the same right to vote, but if they can't exercise their franchise in a meaningful way, if they don't have the opportunities to live a minimally decent life the way that they would like to conceive it, then we're still dealing with profound injustice. And this shift towards listening, uh, towards making people heard and making people represented, is, I hope, a sea change in the way in which we've been speaking about injustice. Uh, but at the same time, we still have this hardcore support, you know, that 30% that Constantine and Inderjeet were alluding to of Trump supporters who are just going to vote for their man no matter what. Getting people to surrender the privileges that they've become accustomed to is an incredibly difficult ask. Leone, as someone who's done so much wonderful work on civil resistance and on allyship, I would love to hear your thoughts on how we can correct historical injustice and the challenges of reconciliation. I mean, I would agree with your, with your take on this, and I would even take it a bit further to argue that in order to achieve the social transformation we're talking about, it's not about bringing the excluded into the current system. 
it's about finding a way to restructure the system such that it takes into account the world views of those people who are currently excluded. So if you mention, for example, indigenous people, um, they wouldn't necessarily agree with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They're not the rights that they want to be entitled to. They don't want to be brought into who's entitled to those rights. They have a different concept of what rights they are entitled to, whether it's community rights should be the focus of their struggles. So I think in terms of movements that are achieving this bigger change, I think the indigenous movements is somewhere to look at because they're not looking simply to be included in the current system. They're looking for their way of operating and their way of understanding the world to be part of the way that we all view and structure, structure the world today. So I think we're looking more at the concept of justice that you brought up, David, than we are of rights. And I think the movement towards global justice is the movement that's making headway in terms of criticizing the human rights movement, which did make various changes in terms of who was seen as human enough to achieve rights, but it's shifting our understanding of what the goal actually is. And it's thinking about justice at the, at the center of what we're looking to achieve in the future. The necessity of unity right across those people who are marginal. I think that is the fundamental thing which appears to be emerging more strongly now than it has for some time. So when, David, you mentioned the 30% of the electorate uh, which will turn out for Trump uh, as the kind of diehard white supremacy, I don't think that is actually the case, but that's not my view. I think there are secular Trumpists too who are not swayed so much by the racial, uh, but they are swayed by the fact of their economic position and their anxieties for the future of their economic position. And their ideas about the kind of corruption levels within the sort of uh, Congress and the mainstream political parties. So I think those, they, they are, they're looking for a particular kind of leadership, which they hope will deliver more material results although they, you know, there is clearly a psychological wage for some others too. So I'm not sure that that is as, as solid a block uh, as possible. And that, the solidity of that block uh, is maintained partly by Trump, but also partly by the fact that the opposition plays into the hands of Donald Trump's identity politics messages. By, by focusing around identity politics, it says, we are against you, and that solidifies both, but it keeps both sets of people apart. But when you look at marginality and exclusion, it's not some people are marginal and some people are excluded and others are all in. There's degrees of marginality, degrees of uh, exclusion from the American dream. And that, those degrees of marginality and degrees of exclusionism operate right through the white community and the Hispanic community and the Asian community uh, Native Americans and African Americans too. And I think that is the big problem with that I find with identity politics, is that it tends to solidify particular blocks. Uh, and it says white privilege. And as soon as you mention that, people escape back into their silo thinking I'm under attack here. And Donald Trump says, yeah, I'm your man. Our conversation moved from discussing historical injustices and reconciliation to considering how America's racial politics are affecting international politics and America's reputation in the world. I can speak at the level of social movements, and I think 
The current iteration of Black Lives Matter has been a really interesting development in social movements and also this concept of allyship. So Black Lives Matter originally emerged as a hashtag, it emerged on social media, which was a significant mobilization tool for the movement. And I think during this period of coronavirus, where lots of people were sitting there on their electronic devices, it had an interesting mobilization effect. And it's often debated about the role of social media in social movements and to what extent it actually is successful in mobilizing people. And I think in this case, we can see that it really has done something for the social movement. And it's done more, I think, in terms of education. And I think this is quite an interesting shift. If you saw, if you're a follower of Instagram and you have a guilty pleasure of um, following fairly superficial individuals flogging various products, you'll see that a, a shift happened in what they were doing. And the question of allyship came up. There was initially a black square that was put onto Instagram on the, on the, in response to the killing of George Floyd. And the response to that was saying, that's a very performative act of allyship. So you're not posting your stuff today. That's great, but what about tomorrow? And as a result of that, lots of conversations have come about around what it means to be an ally and what it means to use your privilege to support others. And you see people use, who have lots of followers handing over their platform to others, to people from the Black Lives Matter movement or African-Americans to give them that big platform. And so I think what has been interesting is this conversation over allyship has really come to the fore. And I think it's an important one for other movements to have. Um, I'm particularly interested in the role of allies in indigenous struggles. If you're part of a settler colonial community, uh, what is your role when it comes to the anti-colonial resistance? So I think there's a lot to actually to unpack around what's happened with regard to allyship and solidarity activism through this Black Lives Matters and how to weaponize that privilege that we might have, but at the same time, learning from those who are suffering from the oppression. So I would see that as a big takeaway from what's been happening in terms of the protests within America at the moment. Indrajit, would you like to comment on this? Yeah, I think there's an interesting development really, if you like, from the period of the Cold War uh, to now. Here in the Cold War, the US was competing geopolitically, militarily, ideologically with the Soviet Union and with China, revolutionary China, uh, which had a much more powerful anti-racist, anti-colonial traditions. And when the post-colonial states from Africa, especially, but also Asia, emerge into the United Nations, as you know, located in New York City and into their embassies in Washington, DC, they can't actually take a coffee, get a coffee, rent a hotel room, get a school place for their child or rent a home for themselves because of segregation. So that if you like the struggle at that time among American elites, which, which kind of helped fuel also the civil rights movement was that America's image is, is actually damaging America's foreign policy and its global standing and ability to mobilize post-colonial states. Now what you've got is uh, an uncompromising president who basically is out to subordinate every other power in the world and is not actually selling a soft power, human rights, democracy, anti-racist <clears throat> message at all. His view is towards Europe, pay up, do more. We're gonna put tariffs on your cars or whatever. 
unless you do X, Y, and Z. So it, it's not necessarily an only, only a racialized message internationally, although it is also deeply racialized in regard to China. You will recall the previous head of the policy planning staff of the State Department, Chiron Skinner, saying that China represented a new kind of threat to America, a new kind of challenge, because it's a non-Caucasian power. That it wasn't even in the Western family, unlike the Soviet Union, uh, which was uh, at least at Marxism as a part of the kind of enlightenment rooted philosophy or whatever. So what you've got is, you've got this kind of racialized message in regard to China, the Kung flu, Wuhan virus, but uh, largely it's one, it's an uncompromising message which says, it's not only race or whatever, it's power. And we are going to subordinate every challenger and competitor because the US has paid and subsidized the international system. Uh, others have piggybacked on it. This is the view and the US has been damaged by it and uh, they're going to make everybody pay up a lot more. So I think race is in there, but it's not the only factor. It's an attempt to maintain a kind of a coercive American hegemony, which doesn't care so much about what America at home looks like to the rest of the world. In fact, it may be selling the other message, which is we're uncompromising everywhere, at home and abroad. We're militarized our police and we're militarizing and weaponizing all our instruments of power too, including the dollar and the financial payment systems and stuff like that. And that is a great place to bring this week's discussion to a close. Thank you for listening to the City Politics Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Or if you're feeling a little bit cheeky, all three. I'd like to thank our guests, Inderjeet Parmar and Leonie Fleischman. If you'd like to read more of Inderjeet's work, he has authored multiple articles for TheWire.in and TheConversation.com. You should check out his new book, co-edited with Oliver Turner, The United States in the Indo-Pacific, Obama's Legacy and Trump's Transition. It's available as a free download from the Manchester University Press's website. You can also follow Inderjeet on Twitter at US Empire. You can learn more about Leone's work by reading her recent article for The Conversation, co-authored with Matthew Graham, Black Lives Matter, Four Lessons in White Allyship from the South African Anti-Apartheid Movement, as well as her new article, The Role of Internal Third-Party Interveners in Civil Resistance Campaigns, The Case of Israeli-Jewish Anti-Occupation Activists in the Journal of Government and Opposition. You can follow us on Twitter at TheCityPolitics. You can follow Constantine on Twitter at K underscore Vossing, K underscore V-O-S-S-I-N-G, and you can find me on all social platforms as at GD Blunt. You've been listening to the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. Music by Cambo, and a very big thank you to our producer, Atina Dimitrova.